As a way to honor all of the mothers on here, from now through Mother's Day weekend, you can grab the My Essential Birth course and get the new bonus birth affirmations track plus matching birth affirmation cards and get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot. Or you can be one of the first five to bundle and save grabbing the My Essential Birth and Postpartum course. And I will personally send you a handmade 100% muslin cotton belly bind with your bonus tutorial video. Plus you get all the bonuses from before the birth affirmation track, matching birth affirmation cards, and you get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot totaling $247 worth of goodies. Head to myessentialbirth.com forward slash get started and join me in the birth course today. Happy Mother's Day. Welcome to the My Essential Birth Podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Stephanie. And we're professional doulas, childbirth educators, and the creators of My Essential Birth, the holistic, empowering online childbirth education course helping mothers everywhere confidently achieve their best birth. So join us each week as we share tips and advice for all things pregnancy, birth, and beyond. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you can be the first to get new content. And head over to www.myessentialbirth.com for more information about our birth course and to join a community of mamas just like you. Our amazing reviewer of the week is nlittrell1006, who says, finally confident about birth. I'm a first-time mom who's been preparing since the morning I found out. I've tried multiple podcasts, YouTube videos, and books, but I don't think anything has prepared me as much or made me feel as comfortable as these two ladies have. High five, Steph. Woo-hoo, woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. <laughs> they explain everything in detail, which is really helpful for me since I'm a first-time mom, and sometimes I feel like I don't have a clue what I'm doing or what to expect, and it's so comforting to hear these things from other moms who have been through the same things. It's so nice to know that you're not alone. Y'all are so relatable. Like half the time while I'm listening, I feel like I'm just having a conversation with my girlfriends or something. (laughs) Good. That's what we want. No podcast has genuinely made me bust up laughing, but this one has. (laughs) It's so fun to listen to. Thank you so much for what y'all do. And thank you for giving me confidence to face birth and motherhood. Thank you so much. I know. I love this. I love everything about it. And I love that you feel like it's just a conversation with girlfriends because seriously, that's all... I feel like we ever want it to be. Yeah. And the fact that you can laugh means you get it. Right? <laughs> you get our weird, twisted humor. Yeah. You guys, thank you so much for your reviews. They always mean so much. If I'm having a rough day, I'll just go to our podcast reviews, and usually there's a new one waiting, and I'm like, oh, yes. this is cool. Okay, well, we are hoping you get excited for today's podcast episode. This is something that you're probably going to hear us talk about every single time we get to fall, because there's a lot of holidays going on, um, and we want to talk about due dates, and we want to talk about inductions. So this episode is going to go into all of the things that have to do with holidays, due dates, and inductions. First, I want to jump into the due dates. We want to talk about why it's an issue during the holiday season, what to look for to make sure that your provider and you are on the same page, and we want to talk about when it's actually appropriate to start encouraging natural induction and when it's appropriate to discuss medical induction. So sometimes you'll you'll notice that the provider wants to induce, and sometimes mom will want to induce. So we're going to walk through those reasons in just a moment. All right, so here are some reasons why a mom might want to schedule an induction. All right, so let's say you know 
know you've got family coming into town for Thanksgiving. They're going to be there maybe, you know, the Monday before they're going to stay for a week. And you know that it would be really beneficial for you to have, say, your mom there helping with a new baby. Um, maybe you want to coordinate so that she's not having to come for Thanksgiving and then come out a couple weeks later, right, for when baby's born. I think just in general, for a lot of women, knowing when their baby is going to be born and being able to plan things around that is is a reason why they may want to do that. Which Enneagram is that? <laughs> Who the are planner. you? It's the type A, the yes. in control, like the, the suspense and the uncertainty is killing me. I want to yes. know when this You're the one that coming. has the calendar out. You've planned everything. You're like, no, if baby's born here, it's going to ruin everything, you know? So then we start getting excited and talking about induction. That's not uncommon. I've had some parents too, and they're like, hey, if we have the baby born this year, we get to claim the tax credit. We really oh, want yeah. this baby here before January 1st, you know? Yeah. And it's it's not just us that hear that, right? Like, yeah. that's a real thing for doctors to have to come up against and hear like, look, if we can get this baby here first. And, and that's real. Like financial reasons are very real. And so along with that are things like insurance, right? Like I've yeah. met my deductible for the year. If this baby's born before December 31st, even though their due date's the 28th, you know, <laughs> then um, I don't have to pay out of out of pocket for that deductible. So it makes, I we get it. We yeah. get the reasons. We just want to give you an idea of what that would look like. I tend to be a little bit of a control freak. And one of the things that was really weighing on my mind heavily with each baby towards the end of pregnancy was who's going to be on call, right? And I would even ask my providers, what's your on-call schedule for the next three or four weeks? And they knew me and would give it to me. And they'll probably give it to you too if you ask because I wanted to know which doctor or midwife within the practice Am I going to have deliver my baby if I go into labor on this day or this day, right? And what happens if there's somebody that you don't really jive with? Like, oh gosh, I love everybody in the practice except Dr. So-and-so. She's just really not my favorite. And I see that she's on call for these few days here, right? So um, maybe you're wanting to schedule an induction because you just really want to make sure that you have the provider that you want delivering your baby. Yeah, I think provider vacations are um, super common, especially during holidays. Not like they go on crazy amounts of them, but it's not uncommon for them to grab a couple of days to be with family. And so um, making sure that you have that conversation early on so that you know what their vacation schedule looks like and you guys can discuss what would happen. Okay, you brought up the fact that sometimes in different practices, they have several providers and you might not always love all of them. Heck, yeah. you might not even meet all of them. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations like... What, like, would, in that case, for you, would you be like, I actually think I want to go to a practice where I like everybody? Would you change providers at that point? Yeah. So a conversation I had with my provider down in Arizona, because he was part of a practice, there was one guy in there that I just really did not like at all. And so um, you can ask them sometimes to make exceptions. Like, hey, listen, I'd be cool with anybody but Dr. So-and-so. If it gets to be around my due date and he's the one that's on call... Um, is there any way you'd be willing to come in for my birth, right? You know, like, and trust this provider for a reason. Hopefully you have some rapport. Talk to them about how you can have some um, assurances around that time. Just say, look, I love everybody here. Not so much this person. What can we do about this? And listen and be open to their ideas and suggestions. I like that. Um, I would say, too, sometimes um, the people that we don't necessarily jive with or like 
if for some reason they do end up at our birth, it's not always terrible, <laughs> right. right? Like sometimes well, it not... works out just great and you're like, wow, they were really meant to be at my birth for whatever reason. Yeah, so. and keep in mind, um, if you're going into labor on your own, they're not going to be there for very long. Yeah. I mean, they oftentimes, especially with OBs, they're coming in right at the very end to catch your baby. So even if they're not your favorite person in the world, um, they're not going to be there for very long, right? And so just keep that in mind. It's not like they're standing over your bed, hovering over every contraction. Um, just make sure that you have discussed your preferences with the provider that you see often. Talk to them about, you know, how would I handle this situation? Because I know you're on board with me picking my pushing position, but what if Dr. So-and-so isn't? How do you suggest I approach that if, you know, I'm at birth? The other thing too is to do, do your homework up front, right? I know you guys get sick of us talking about this, but um, these are really important questions to find out before you choose your provider, right? How does it work? Um, you know, is the doctor I see for all my prenatals going to be the doctor that delivers my baby? Do you have a rotation schedule or an on-call schedule? What does that look like? These are really great things to ask before you pick your provider. Right. And then when you're coming up to these holidays or whatever, it's not, you're not scrambling at the last minute. You Mm -hmm. already have in your mind, these are the things that can happen. And this is what I'm going to do in case if it's the same reason, if you guys are in the birth course, we have a birth plan priority game and we take you through different scenarios and kind of walk you through the like, what if this happens and what if that happens and could you let go of this? And But really just being a part of the decision making is what brings it all together. So if you're taking care of these things early on, like Courtney said, then when it comes time, it's just not going to be, it shouldn't shake you up too much. You should be prepared. As we head into cold weather season, um, weather might play a factor, I feel like, for a lot of women, depending yeah. on how near or far they live to their birthplace or where they live, right? If you're out in the sticks and your hospital or your birthplace is a good hour away, um, you might be concerned about, you know, well, what if we get three feet of snow? I don't want to be delivering my baby stuck. in the car, in the snow on the side of the highway where other people might have trouble getting to me too. And so that could be a concern in the back of your mind. All of these, you guys, are reasons why a mom might choose to have an induction. Another reason and probably not the last, but women get tired of being pregnant. <laughs> like You yep. hit 38, 39 weeks, you're eating that Thanksgiving dinner and you're like, I just would like to be able to eat all of it. You know, (laughs) Um, coming up to that, it just is like, or maybe your friend had a similar due date and she had her baby three weeks early and you're like, I am still pregnant. Like there are different reasons that come up. You're up all night peeing. Yes. You know, you're just over it. Yeah. So anyways, just, just all the things that can go on in a mind for induction. But next we want to get into reasons a provider might want to induce. So listen up. You guys, they're humans. <laughs> they have families. They have family get-togethers and functions that they really don't like to miss, just like you don't like to miss your parties and functions as well. And so you might get a provider that just really doesn't want to deliver a baby on the weekend or on their family gathering or on a holiday. This time of year, we see that a ton. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but it can be true. Hopefully you have a provider that that's not the case. But again, you want to be able to gauge. We're going to give you some um, some ways to kind of catch some red flags or what you can look for later that'll tell you whether or not it has anything to do with a weekend or a holiday or a vacation or anything like that. Because here's the thing. I don't think I've ever had anybody tell me, oh yeah, my provider was just really honest with me and said, um, so-and-so, I want to schedule your induction because I want to go on a ski trip this weekend. No provider's 
teacher's going to tell you that, guys. They're going to invent some other kind of reason. And so like Steph said, <laughs> we're going to talk about those red flags a little later. Yeah. Um, and along with that, like a planned vacation, we talked about that for moms, you being aware of that. Maybe you're concerned about a planned vacation for the provider and so you want to induce. But maybe this provider knows how important it is for you to have them at your birth and they know they're coming up on a vacation and so they want to encourage you to induce so that they can be there. And we've heard that quite a few times. Yes. Like if you want yep. to make sure I'm here, then we should probably induce a couple days, a week early, two weeks early, whatever. Yeah. 2020 has kind of thrown so many curveballs for almost every facet of life, right? But birth certainly wasn't left untouched by those. Nope. And you're going to have providers, and we're not saying this is evidence-based because I don't really think it is, but you're going to have providers who have concerns about COVID outbreaks. Um, currently, at least in our state, cases are spiking again, and they want to get you in and out of the hospital when they know that there are maybe less COVID patients or less cases. Here's the thing about that. You can't predict it exactly, right? right. We can anticipate um, high COVID case times, but nobody knows for sure until like the day of or the day after, right? When we hear about cases. Um, so they might give this to you as a reason why they're pushing for an induction, but but keep in mind that there's just really, there's no evidence right now because it's all so fresh and so new. So fresh and so clean, clean. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, side note though, the thing about it is I would say if that's something that's very concerning to you too, and when he brings that up, that kind of spikes something in your body that tells you like, oh yeah, maybe that is a thing. Um, do some research as well as to even women and babies who do get it. Um, how likely are they to recover? How sick do they really get? What does that look like for you? Is it worth it for you to get in and out of there to not get that illness versus maybe having a baby that's born a couple days too early or maybe because of getting induced, you have other issues like interventions or maybe a cesarean birth. You're going to have to weigh those things, but we'll get into that in a bit. Um, another reason that we see for induction is coming up to your due date or even hitting 41 weeks. This is like the classic, maybe you've even had a lot of conversations, but you get closer to your due date and all of a sudden we're talking induction. You haven't mm -hmm. even hit your due date and all of a sudden, well, if you go over 40 weeks or if you go past your due date or by the time you hit 41, you know, and the truth is, well, I'll get into that in a minute, but it's not necessarily an evidence-based reason for induction. And lastly, and this is really the only one I feel like could be valid, honestly, out of all of these that we've talked about is there could be uh, a medical reason that your provider feels that induction would be best. There could be serious concerns over gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. Um, they could find that your placenta is kind of breaking down and, and they find that through ultrasound. Um, there could be issues with placental bleeding, any number of things really. And certainly those could all be legit grounds for a medical induction. So let's take a moment and chat about due dates. We haven't had a specific podcast for it, although I think we've talked about it a lot. I feel like we talk about <laughs> it a lot, but you're right. We but this that. is needed, so we want to get a little deep into it here. So let's talk about how they figure out your due date. So the very first one, the most common one, is they say, when's the first day of your last missed period? Now, I will tell you, when I first started <laughs> having my baby, I didn't know. I wasn't keeping track on an app. I was not paying attention like I should. I'm like, they're every 30, 31 days. I think it's supposed to be around here. Like, yeah. I was totally guessing. So that alone is iffy. 
right? <laughs> a little suspect. <laughs> oh, well, it kind of depends. I was the opposite. We had been trying to get pregnant for so many years. Totally. I oh, could yeah. tell you exactly how many yes. days they'd been, my basal body temperature for each when one, you when I ovulated. Yeah. I knew all that Okay, stuff. so Courtney is the ideal, right? If you're asking <laughs> for somebody's for like the first day of their last miss period and you know what day you've ovulated, yeah. um, you're getting a little bit closer. But even at that, like how many how many providers actually go off of an ovulation no. date? Well, it's so always here's, here's the crazy part. I knew all that information when I ovulated, how many days my cycles were last month. I knew all of that, right? Yeah. But all they asked me when I went in with my first was, when was your last missed period? And I didn't know enough at that point to know that there's other questions they should have been asking. They should have been asking me how long my cycle was. Do you know when you ovulated or conceived? They didn't ask me any of that. I hadn't taken a birth course. And so... um, I'll be honest. I haven't seen too many bees ask. Oh, too many bees. <laughs> yes, Freudian too many O bees ask that. Like oh, the bees. only place I've really seen this is with midwives yeah. in a home birth setting or a birth center setting. Um, but, but it's really important to know because seriously, if you ovulate, they so they predict ovulation. They predict that every woman using this has a 28 day cycle. <laughs> every woman, and that they ovulate on day 14. Uh, does that sound like all of you listening? No. (laughs) Okay. Mine were 30 to 31 days when I started getting pregnant. Um, and I never tracked my ovulation until we were trying to get pregnant this last couple of years. And I ovulate crazy late, like a week late. I found out that that's why I was actually miscarrying a lot is because I would ovulate so late in my cycle that my body didn't have enough time to produce the necessary progesterone to then sustain in pregnancy. So they don't ask you this stuff, though. They don't. Which is crazy, because if you go know. to an OB for fertility stuff, like, did yeah. that OB that you went to, knowing that you ovulated late, did that change your, your Absolutely, my course of treatment. No, it didn't, though. It didn't I didn't change to the, her due date. It didn't. So he knew that about me, and yet assumed my cycle was 28 days, and I ovulated right smack dab in the middle of okay, it. Okay, here's why it can get a little sketchy, guys. Because not only are you dealing with ovulation, but there's a time for implantation. And that can take anywhere from two to five days for a baby to get just nestled into the where they need to be. All of that matters for the due date. And if you're a week, a week and a half off, and you're coming up to 40 weeks, supposedly, but you're really 39, mm-hmm. then it's they're going to bring up induction at a time that's not correct for you and baby, which is why there's so many other factors that need to go into it. Yeah. So... Okay. And then the other part of that is... We'll get off our soapbox. Yes. Sorry. Yes. (laughs) The other way that they figure it is off of ultrasound. And we've talked about this before, but I'm going to let Courtney touch on it. As a way to honor all of the mothers on here, from now through Mother's Day weekend, you can grab the My Essential Birth course and get the new bonus birth affirmations track plus matching birth affirmation cards and get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot. Or you can be one of the first five to bundle and save grabbing the My Essential Birth and Postpartum course. And I will personally send you a handmade 100% muslin cotton belly bind with your bonus tutorial video. Plus you get all the bonuses from before the birth affirmation track, matching birth affirmation cards, and you get entered to win one of three goodies from Docatot, totaling $247 worth of goodies. Head to myessentialbirth.com forward slash get started and join me in the birth course today. Happy Mother's Day. 
Yeah. So assuming that you haven't had prior fertility issues. So for example, my appointments when I was pregnant were always at like five to six weeks. They were really early because we wanted to make sure things were implanting in the right place. Everything was going according to plan. But for most women, that's not the case. For most women, you're going to have your first prenatal visit between 10 and 12 weeks, and they'll do an ultrasound at that time. They're looking for, is baby in the right place? (laughs) Are they in your uterus and not anywhere else? Is there a heartbeat? And then they'll do a dating ultrasound. So based off of baby in that moment, um, about how far along do they look developmentally? And that's how they kind of calculate your due date. And what we have found and what studies have found is that that's actually the most accurate way, assuming that you don't know exactly when you conceived and all that other information we talked about, that's the most accurate way to determine your due date is an ultrasound done between 11 to 14 weeks. Yeah. And and that, even at that, it's like a little less than 70% that they get right, but it's the most accurate in the sense that it grabs most of them. And even with that information, it's give or take 11 days. And that's Mm -hmm. according to a study that was done in 2013. We'll link to it in the show notes. But keep in mind that like even this is not a perfect science. So your your job is to gather all the information and get a good idea for yourself. It's also the provider's job, but we're giving you all the background info so that they're not just spinning the little wheel that they get, right? Do you or know like what putting I would it love? into the computer that says this is the date. Do you what? know what I would love? I'm just throwing this out there. Wouldn't it be great if instead of having a single date on your chart, they had a range? Yep. Right. If they were like, okay, if we're going based off of period information and cycle information, this is around when we think you'll deliver or when your baby will be due. Based off this ultrasound, it gives us kind of a variance of a week. So somewhere between here and here. Wouldn't that be amazing? That would be amazing. Can we make that happen? Ask insurance. I bet that's (laughs) part of it. I don't know. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Um, I think, I honestly think home birth midwives would have a lot more um, leniency. They'd be mm-hmm. a lot happier to do lenient. And maybe, maybe OBs would too. I can't speak to that. I just know what I've seen, um, with birth center and home births where they're like, you know, I have to go off of this date. Like they, ha- they make me, I have to create oh, a date. Yeah. I have, and, you know, and we can't keep you past 42 and like all of these things go into it to where they're legally allowed to practice. So I think that's part of it, Liability. but it would be yeah. great if we could, as a community decide that this is fluid, which yeah. we all know it is. Um, the other thing about ultrasounds is if you, the, Courtney's talked about the importance of having it between that 11 to 14 weeks and not changing it after, after that. that. Not at your 20, not at those third trimester, oh, we want to do your 3D ultrasound or yes. whatever. Like not then, not changing it then, or oh, baby's measuring big and you're 36. Three. No, don't change it. Yeah. No. And how many times do you get, I don't know. Anyways, I'm not going to get into it. But the truth, like the truth <laughs> is like that that's the most accurate ultrasound and changing it at a later time is not evidence-based nope. and it's not good. So we really, really discourage that, that if you're having somebody give you some pushback on that, I would either get a second opinion or just tell them, no, don't move my due date. Like I, that's not okay. Yeah. This is one of the things I love about our birth course is that we link to all these studies. So if you have a provider trying to change your due date at say 32 weeks, you can go to our resource section in the course, print off the study that talks about the best way to do this is between 11 to 14 weeks. And that can lead to a far more protective conversation between you and your provider where you're more likely to get your way if we're being honest. So um, we really tried to do a lot of that legwork for you to make your job um, easy and to give you confidence when speaking with your provider. 
Yep. And the other way that they measure is bundle height. And I feel like that's another one of those that gets changed a lot more in the third trimester where they're like, well, baby's measuring a week below or a week above. Mm -hmm. So let's move that date to here. Um, which again, moving moving dates later on is just not <laughs> super awesome. And then along with that, understanding that studies show consistently that gestation, especially for first-time moms, is much closer to 41 weeks. And even multiparous or women who've given birth before is still closer to 41 weeks. So I don't know why we're still going off of this ridiculous 40-week nonsense. I don't know. And you know what? I just was thinking – the minute your baby is born, your pediatrician puts them on a growth scale, right? And this is often a bragging source for a lot of parents like, oh my gosh, my baby's head circumference is like 95th percentile, yeah. <laughs> right? Like they've got such a big head. Or, you know, even for my kids, even though they're kind of older now, oh my gosh, Eden's 85th percentile for height. It doesn't really matter a whole lot where you are on that growth scale. I've got other kids that have been like in the 20th percentile for stuff. Their pediatrician wasn't worried. So why are we so overly concerned with how big or small a baby is? I understand that sometimes their size or their weight can be indicative of things like gestational diabetes if they're kind of big or um, placental insufficiency if they're measuring kind of small. But in general... I mean, we don't hold kids to like everybody needs to be this size. I don't know why we do that to babies in utero. Right. Um, and keep in mind that everything that we've just talked about, like everything is done on a bell curve, just like you said, where we've got these averages, which sound wonderful, but there's normal on either side of that spectrum. Yep. So it really is like a you have to pay attention to yourself, your body, the whole situation, your family history. Like there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. Um, and keep in mind, babies can be born before and after that timeline and be healthy and well. So yep. all, all of that to say due dates are very important and pay attention to the whole picture. So with all of this information in mind, due dates, reasons why a doctor may want to induce, reasons why a mom may want to, here are some things to consider specific to induction. When the conversation turns towards induction, one of the first things and probably a really important thing for you to know and understand from your provider is your Bishop score. What's a Bishop score? Um, it's kind of a point system to determine how likely your body is to respond favorably to an induction. So you're assigned points in each of the five categories I'm gonna list with a total of 13 possible points. So you get three points for dilation, right? Are you dilated a little bit already or are you not dilated at all? Three points for station, that's how high up or down your baby is in relation to your pelvis. Um, three possible points for effacement, that means how thick or how thin your cervix is. The thinner it is, the more likely you are to dilate. It's nice and ripe and pliable. And then two possible points for um, consistency, meaning the firmness or softness of your cervix. And then two more points for the position of your cervix, because um, it can be sort of anterior. It can be, anyway, it's not just right in the middle always at all times. If your score is greater than an eight, you are said to be favorable for induction. There's enough signs right in your body that your body is kind of leaning towards labor anyway. So an induction would likely go well for you. If you are at a six or less, it's considered unfavorable for induction. Your body is not really showing any signs on its own that it's ready for labor. And so it's like knocking on a closed door. You're not going to make a lot of progress. It's like trying to poo when you're constipated. It's just not going <laughs> to go super well. 
Yeah, and the reason that these things matter is because it it means this small amount of information and these little points mean that there's going to have to be more work done medically before you can get your body ready to go into labor. So it means you're going to have more interventions. Um, we're going to talk about natural ways to induce and medical ways to induce, but there's a, there's just more that has to happen. And so generally that's going to increase not just risk of intervention, but when you increase the risk for intervention, it also increases your chances for a cesarean birth. And, and just you have to be in the hospital earlier. Like if you're talking medical induction, you usually mm-hmm. come the night before generally they start you at night, which I absolutely hate. I do not understand. Cervical ripeners and all that. And then you're tired moving into the birth. It's just a different experience. And so we're going to, we're going to prep you a little bit for what that's going to look like, but just know if these points, if you know about your dilation station, abasement, consistency, the position of your cervix, if you know all of that stuff, it's going to give you a bigger picture for, for how lucky, (laughs) for how well things are going to go. Or maybe if you're going to have a little bit of a challenge. So one of my favorite birth topics is natural ways to induce labor. I think I became a little bit obsessive about this because I found myself in positions where I was sick of being pregnant. My mom can only take this week off of work to come help with baby. Like I want to make this happen, right? So there are natural ways to do this. And one of those is castor oil. Um, it It's really best for this to be overseen by a medical professional, a midwife, an obstetrician, even if you're just getting the green light from them, just let them know what you're doing. Um, But it is more on the natural side. I love the gentle recipe that we have. Castor oil, you guys, is like, it's like a major laxative. Um, (laughs) Have you ever tasted it? It tastes I've heard it's horrible. I've done it twice with two of my babies, actually. I did. And um, did it work? Oh yeah, oh. it totally worked. But you guys, I was like, you have to try not to throw up drinking this <laughs> stuff down. Now, mind you, the times I did it, I just mixed it into orange juice and was like trying to chug it that way. Mm-hmm. The recipe we have is so much better. Um, it's a lot easier to get down. But anyway, castor oil, what it does is it causes cramping, um, and like you know when you've got diarrhea and you've got cramps, <laughs> right? That's exactly what it is. And so you're on the toilet, you're pooing your brains out. It's really important during this time that you stay hydrated. Um, It's not true that if you take castor oil that it'll cause baby to have a bowel movement in utero. But I think sometimes what can happen is if you're pooing and pooing and pooing and you allow yourself to get dehydrated, Hmm. um, that can sometimes lead to some fetal issues with baby and then maybe in a moment of distress they have a bowel movement in utero so if you do this your provider will give you tips but you're going to want to make sure you stay really well hydrated and you're going to poo your brains out for a while and then it's going to stop right and it's funny because both times I like did it um, early in the evening and it did cause some contractions and I was getting really excited and then it all went away all of it, the pooing contractions, the regular Wait, contractions. Wait, so did it work for contractions Hold on. or did it work for diarrhea? Both. But okay. Anyway, but then they both stopped. And I remember both times going to bed so discouraged, crying to my husband like, <laughs> it didn't work and I just am so ready to have this baby. And then both times, the very next morning at like five or six in the morning, contractions started that led to a baby being born. So all I'm saying is if you go that route, don't be discouraged if you feel like- I'm so glad it's finally you telling stories (laughs) can we just have a moment for that don't be discouraged if you like do all this pooing and you feel like it led nowhere just just give it uh, some time to work its magic but yeah really best if you can 
you know, we probably should say for legal purposes on this podcast, a professional should oversee that. Yes, yes, they should. Um, along with that, natural ways to induce. So we actually have this like round of stuff that we have women do, but I'm not going to get into all that. Yeah. Just know that walking exercise um and kind of in succession right where we like we yeah. walk we exercise we have a little bit of sex we do some nipple stimulation um, who's telling stories now huh? <laughs> i didn't i'm not talking about myself this time though. Uh-huh. okay <laughs> clary sage oil um all of those things and in succession can kind of get things moving so yeah. as we know like it um intercourse is great because semen is a natural prostaglandin so you have to make sure that you finish and he finishes because you want to get contractions and we want the the semen to work as that prostaglandin and help soften the cervix um but then overall just the stimulation because, because can help. The orgasm can trigger uterine spasms. I'm feeling like PG. Like I'm like, I don't want oh, to sorry. say anything. Okay. No, 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 no. Sorry. I, I'm feeling weird about it, which is weird. <laughs> usually, okay, you guys, usually like even on my Instagram the other night, if you listen to how I said vagina, I realized my boys were in the other room and I was like, vagina. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're getting older and I'm like, oh, they know what Look, it is. Look, even if, and I'm just throwing this out there, even if you yourself are not able to achieve that climax there, I'm using nicer <laughs> words, Stephanie, um, the, the prostaglandin, the prostaglandin contribution from your, <laughs> from your spouse or partner will still be effective. It'll still help. Yes, it's good. Okay. You can also start, uh, we say you can start eating six dates per day, which this might sound weird, but they're like as small as the study was, it was, it seemed like it was very effective. So we encourage it. If you can handle it, you can mix them in a shake or bake cookies or just eat them straight. Whatever We've you talked on do. Instagram about which kind, you know, is it the really big ones? Oh yeah, man. Is right. it the little small ones? So just, you know, you yes. So six days and you can start that actually at 34 weeks. So we say 34 to 36 weeks and you can start eating dates, all these other things all these natural ways to induce should really be done after 37. There's um, preparatory tonics. I was a huge fan of those. Did those with every single pregnancy as well. Um, You can do some research on that. Now, let's talk about medical ways to induce labor. Obviously, these are things that require a medical professional, right? These are not things you can or should be doing on your own. (laughs) So that could be something like a membrane sweep, which stuff you just talked about this on Instagram. I did. We just talked about it in stories. But by the time you guys see this, it will definitely be gone. So, yeah, um, membrane sweep is when a provider goes through the cervix through, with a vaginal exam, puts their fingers through the cervix, and separates the bag of waters from the inside of your uterine wall. And when they do that, it can cause, it's supposed to cause some irritation that creates contractions. Um, but this is one we definitely need more medical because first of all, you need a, a medical professional to do it, but then it can have some effects that are not so wonderful. Undesirable. So yeah. it can cause a ton of prodromal labor that does not lead to having a baby, um, particularly if you're GBS positive, but even if you're not, it has a risk of causing infection. And if you uh, you go home, you're having flu-like symptoms and you have a fever, well, you have to come back to the hospital, you have to be induced, you're, you have to be on antibiotics. So some of you are like, I don't want an IV, I want to be able to move around. I don't want continuous monitoring. All that kind of goes away. So you have to kind of take on some of those more medical things. And then if baby's born and they have an infection, then you're looking at a little bit of NICU time. So just know that there are risks and benefits to both. The other side of that is you can have it done and it starts contractions and you have a baby. So um, two sides to the coin always. Yeah. And I, I find that I tend to be a little bit more favorable towards membrane sweeps maybe than stuff is just because amongst my 
doula clients and students, we've had pretty good success with them. I don't recommend that everybody just has them done on a whim just because, not at all, but I feel like it can be a really useful tool. So I had a mom who was in prodromal labor for like five days and she was exhausted. And so um, she went in, had a membrane sweep done. The first one didn't do much. And you guys, it's going to feel like a really rough, super uncomfortable vaginal exam. It doesn't feel super it great. I haven't. I've never had okay, to need it yeah. done because I did all the preparatory stuff <laughs> that we <laughs> talked about before. But um, with the herbs and the tonics and things like yeah. that. Anyway, um, she went in for a second one, though. And within five hours, she had her baby. So I feel like it can be really helpful. And again, it's it's like a good, better, best thing, right? If it's between membrane sweeps or my doctor's talking about an induction with Pitocin, I'm going to pick the membrane sweeps, right? Just to see if it can help. But keep in mind, it may not work the first time. Most providers are willing to do it up to three times, um, but it comes with risks as well, which Steph did a great job outlining. Okay. And then on to more of the like we had talked about inducing where they call you and they're like okay be here by this time of night sometimes it's in the morning I do find most of the time it's overnight Mm -hmm. and normally what they do is they do some kind of cervical ripener on your cervix whether that's cervidil or cytotec which we won't get into but we don't recommend cytotec Um, and then they'll use a foley bulb so a foley bulb is like this little balloon thing they kind of go in with a tiny straw with a balloon on the end stick it through the cervix and inflate the balloon. And then they also, there's a tiny balloon on on the bottom side of the cervix. So one goes through the cervix and sits um, kind of at the base of your uterus. And the other balloon is kind of blown up at the beginning of the cervix if you're doing a vaginal exam. So kind of both of those areas. They blow up the balloons and it puts pressure on the cervix just like a baby's head would and it dilates that cervix. And then when you're a couple centimeters, that falls out. Along with that though, once either contractions are going or you're a certain amount of centimeters dilated, they generally start Pitocin, which is the medical form of oxytocin. They'll tell you it's oxytocin. It's not. It's like the, it's the man-made version. Yes. And it doesn't work exactly the same. And we've talked about that before, right? Pitocin will cause contractions. It forces them, right? Mm -hmm. But they're very mechanical feeling in nature. They, they don't, come with the ebb and flow of natural contraction. So they come on hard, they stay strong, they're at that for the whole minute, and then they're off just as suddenly. I I find that it can be more challenging to develop a rhythm in birth and get into a rhythm for birth and, and managing those contractions um, when you're working with Pitocin. And the other part of that is to, you're going to, I want you guys to like stop and think about what you had in mind for what your birth looked like. Now, if you need to have a medical induction, there's an actual need, you feel good about it, your provider feels good about it, then you work with what you have. But if you know that you wanted to come in later in labor and you had different ideas of of what that was going to look like, um, maybe, yeah, you wanted to stay home and work through some contractions. Uh, you didn't want to spend a lot of time in the hospital. You wanted to be able to go home shortly after. All of that can change if we start doing things from the very beginning. So instead of starting your labor in a different location, you're going to be there the entire time. And just being, I mean, being in a hospital setting is not the worst thing in the world, but it can be very disruptive. There's a lot of, you don't get a lot of sleep. It's harder Um, to relax. Yeah. There's just kind of everything. So you have to kind of envision what you want for your birth and then walk through that and see if that's something that is interesting to you. If you're, if you're, if it's not necessarily 
super necessary that it happens. Well, and oftentimes too, these things sort of snowball, right? You start with one medical intervention and this isn't always the case. I don't want to discourage you if this is the path that needs to happen for your birth for a medical reason, but just keep in mind that if you start one thing, a lot of times it snowballs into many other things and and that can sort of be hard to stop once it's rolling. Right. So we see with more inductions, we see more intervention, like we mentioned, as well as more cesarean births. The truth is, you guys, as you can see, there's so many things, factors to take into consideration when you're considering an induction. But I think the best piece of advice we can give you is to trust your body and what it's capable of doing. Trust that your body is wise and knows when it's an appropriate time to bring your baby into this world. Trust your own intuition and your gut feeling, too that gut feeling may lead you to say, you know what, I trust my body, I'm gonna not have this induction. But I think that you get that mother's hunch sometimes, right? That urge that something doesn't feel right. And because of that, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna choose the induction. It feels like the safest thing to do for whatever reason. And sometimes you can't even put your finger on what that reason is, Yeah. but listen to your intuition. Stephanie and I believe firmly that it's a divine gift that all mothers are given. And the more you start to listen to that voice, those hunches, those nudges, whatever you wanna call them, um, I think the more likely it is to lead somewhere good. Um, induction conversations should happen really early during your prenatal visits and before your third trimester. So if you haven't had that conversation yet, we definitely want to encourage you to have that. Consider your due date. Consider your bishop's score. Consider whether or not the reason for induction is in fact medically necessary. So remember that good communication and trusting your instincts is going to help you make an informed and empowered decision, which is always the goal. All right, mamas, we will be back with more tips and advice soon. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe so that you get notifications first about new episodes. And don't forget to head over to myessentialbirth.com for more information on the birth course and to join our online community serving pregnant mamas just like you.